You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 5th of February 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Some would have it govern all aspects of our lives, but do snafus like Monday's Iowa caucus reveal the fallibility of tech? My guests Stephen Diel and James Ball will discuss that and the day's other news, including church, military and state. Will a new proposal from Russia's patriarch recalibrate the delicately balanced relationship between its institutions? And as one of former UK Prime Minister David Cameron's security detail forgets his pistol in an aeroplane loo, we ask what essential documents or lethal weapons our panel has lost. Plus... The lack of custom is having a devastating effect on the hospitality industry that was already on its knees after last year's pro-democracy protests. We reflect on the worrying implications of coronavirus for Hong Kong's already protest-bruised economy. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel and James Ball, global editor at the Bureau and author of The Imminent The System, among other titles. We were talking earlier in the show about the Iowa imbroglio and marvelling that a country which is known for 50 years how to put people on the moon has proved incapable of counting. Not for the first time, and assuredly not the last. An election-related balls-up has asked us to contemplate whether it was worth proceeding past the point of tables of volunteers diligently collating pieces of paper marked with a pencil or other writing implement. Um, James, should all elections be done like that? Here is a piece of paper with a mark on it. Count them. Yeah, pretty much. Um, Short of adding bits of auditing and that sort of thing, which you can do with lots of paper systems, you know, you add security tags, you might number ballots so you can cross-check and make sure the right things of, you know, what's been issued matches what's been given out. Yes, What's sort of really interesting is that in most areas of tech, if you start raising alarmism, experts will sort of say, well, you know, don't be a Luddite. When people sort of say, you know, the Internet of Things mean a cyber attack could bring down the power grid and roast your cat and run over your mom with a (laughs) driverless car, um, people will sort of calm you down a bit. I don't know a single credible cybersecurity expert who just sort of wouldn't laugh and say, yeah, no, electronic voting, don't do it. Terrible idea, awful idea. If you must do it, make sure there's a paper ballot and make sure the voter gets to see it and check it because you could just have a paper ballot printed by the same machine that goes into a box that gives the wrong vote. Um uh, Stephen, it's awful. Stephen James makes a, a couple of excellent points there. One is that the re- reflexive tendency towards Luddism should be avoided because otherwise we would not have proceeded past whichever of our forebears, uh, having successfully invented fire, looked around their cave and sort of stroked their mammoth coat and thought, actually, you know, this will do. I'm good. I've actually now that I think of it. Anyway. Um, <laughs> But is there actually an argument against just abolishing all electronic, computer-linked, online voting, anything like that, and just going back to these basics? We we, we can do VAR in football next. <laughs> With pleasure. Um, I, I think there's got to be a balance, to be honest. I was. Um, uh, this may sound a rather strange analogy, but when um, I started thinking about this one, I thought, well, actually, it's rather... I, let's bring in food. You know, the, um, uh, when the fridge was invented, people thought, you know, you can keep everything in, in, in a fridge. But then the electricity goes off and things start to go off. 
having things in tins is always a good idea. Things stay in tins for much longer. So, you know, actually a combination of the uh, two. Listeners are all now imagining your house. We have we have a full drawer in the kitchen with lots of tins in it, um, and uh, uh, and and so. But we have we also have a large fridge. So you know, uh, it's a mix of the two. And certainly, um, when it comes to voting, you know, it's actually rather important. It may not have seemed so in recent years because it's rather been fixed one way or the other. Because the old system can also be abused. Um, Indeed so. <laughs> thinking of Russia, I mean, it's been, you know, there have been so many cases of, of stuffing of ballot boxes with uh, with extra papers to make sure your candidate gets in has been known in Russia, um, and not only in Russia, of course. But so so I, I think it's a, it's a question of, of the two, but certainly I would, uh, I don't care if someone calls me Luddite or whatever, but, I, you know, I, I'm very wary of going down the complete digital version. I, you know, I, I, I don't like the, the Internet of Things in my home. I, um, uh, you know, I have various devices, but I don't want to be completely digitised. No, I, I, for one, actually, I think would live in a cave before I would engage with any appliance that expected me to speak to it. Um, James, if we proceed on the assumption that if there is something there to be hacked, somebody will try to hack it. Are there other aspects of politics that just should stay analogue? There are occasionally various calls for people to be allowed to just vote online without bothering themselves to walk two blocks up the street once every four years and mark a piece of paper. There are some suggestions that it might not actually be necessary for politicians to turn up in the House of Commons or whatever you're having yourself and cast a vote. Should we insist that some of these these things still be observed even if we don't really need them to? Um, I think you sort of have to tackle a number of issues. When it comes to sort of voting at elections, um, if, you are trying to, if you are trying to run a free and fair election, it is a lot easier to do that with paper ballots or at least electronic with very good paper backup than electronic only. If you're not trying to run a free and fair election but something that looks like one, either system is very workable. When it comes to sort of the broader questions, we do have to regard, you know, there is a balance and we have to go where people are. So sort of trying to say ban online campaigning because it's susceptible to influence and misinformation would be far too many steps beyond what we should do. When it comes to other things, we have to sort of separate out nostalgia uh, or, you know, tradition from sort of the purpose of an exercise. I think one of the big purposes of the exercise of um, MPs being in the chamber when they vote is is the intention or the sort of, you know, romantic notion that they might listen to the ideas being debated and be swayed by them. Um, you know, if anyone actually believes that happens, uh, I have uh, several bridges to sell you at very reasonable rates. Um, and so if we don't actually believe that that function's being done, maybe we could look at it. But of course, it's very easy to do the slippery slope argument of going, well, why not give each chief chief whip all of the votes for their uh, sort of for their party, which I think we would all push back against. Uh, Stephen, are, th- are there other aspects of life that just should remain analogue? I-, I-, I raised the prospect of VAR, the video assistant referee, which is, is currently proving the the ruination of football. I mean, I-, I-, I am a Luddite on this in all sports. Um, I really do think your referee or umpire makes a decision, live with it. It's a game. It's not a murder trial. And yes, before anybody asks if this did come down to the last kick of an AFL grand final and a Geelong premiership hung in the balance... I would still cleave to that philosophy because it would give me something to be indignantly angry about for decades. Uh, But also thinking about 
passports, for example. At some point, somebody is going to issue us with a plastic card instead of a passport. Is, would that be an improvement? I don't think so. No, I th- actually, I think passport is a very—it's a—it's a hugely symbolic thing. I mean, you know, one of the um, two advantages we have from Brexit: one is a new fifty pence coin, I'm and pretty the excited other is, about a, that. is a blue passport. See, I'm, back, I, you know, I'm Australian, well, so my passport's blue already passport, blue. Yeah. yeah, but it's probably got a soft cover, whereas um, the old blue passports had hard covers. Now, you know, this is a huge, huge <laughs> gain for this country. <clears throat> um, no, I, I, joking apart, I think, you know, actually having a passport, having a little book, um, it, it, it is a symbolism to it, that it's, it's rather nice to have a passport of whatever colour. Um, so just a, an identity card, um, you know, it's like you go into your office, perhaps, you know, you might have to show an identity card or in schools these days. Um, so it's something a bit more. That, and, you know, maybe this is just romanticism on my part. But uh, I, I think in that sense, it's it's a better thing to have. I mean, you mentioned VAR. Um, I actually w- was a, um, worked with one of the very first examples of uh, technology in sport because uh, in my youth, I was a tennis umpire at Wimbledon. And um, I remember the, the first machine to, to track the service line, and I was on the service line. And there were times where I saw it was wrong. I couldn't understand the physics, how it could be wrong, because it sent out a beam and it should have been straight. But I could see that the ball was in and it was given out. Um, so technology is not always per- It wasn't then. And, and the fuss we're having with VAR now in, in Britain, I mean, the simple thing in Britain is you actually get the referee to go and look at a screen, which they've only done about twice. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that, that, that again is a combination of VAR uh, and common sense because what they've done actually with VAR is they've removed one of the crucial laws of the game. There's only 17 laws of the game of football and one of them says that the referee's decision is final. Well, they're supposed to, it means the referee, the guy on the pitch and what they're doing now is they're, they're um, passing that decision to someone sitting in a, uh, a an, an office Interestingly, near Heathrow Airport, I've come to the conclusion this is because if football fans get so angry, they will try and go after them, but they can get away from the country very quickly. <laughs> Stephen Diol and James Ball, we'll have more from you both in just a moment. But first, here is Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we're following today. Thanks, Andrew. Thousands of passengers and crew on two cruise ships in Asian waters have been placed in quarantine as the death toll from an outbreak of the fast-spreading coronavirus rises to nearly 500. Meanwhile, two US airlines have suspended flights to Hong Kong following the first fatality there. The World Health Organization has declared the flu-like virus a global emergency, and experts say much is still unknown, including its exact mortality rate and transmission routes. Canada's Federal Court of Appeal has dismissed legal objections to the contentious Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion that would nearly triple the flow of oil from the Alberta oil sands to the Pacific coast. The court rejected four challenges from First Nations in British Columbia to the federal government's approval for the project. The decision is a blow for Indigenous leaders and environmentalists who have pledged to do whatever is necessary to thwart the pipeline. And authorities in Calais have called for their entire town to be turned into a post-Brexit duty-free zone for British shoppers. The mayor, anticipating rather bumpy trade negotiations between the European Union and the UK, wants to make the town a destination for Brits looking for cheap cigarettes, beer and wine, similar to the cross-channel day-trip booze cruises of the 1980s. I'm Ben Ryland. That's what's making news. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Still with me are James Ball and Stephen Diel. Well, let's move on to another jurisdiction famous for its innovations in vote counting, i.e. Russia. One of Russia's more analogue institutions, the Russian Orthodox Church, has floated something of a rebellion against one of Russia's more infamous technological developments, i.e. nuclear weapons. The Church is reportedly discussing ending the hitherto common practice of priests sprinkling holy water upon missiles and other death-dealing apparatus, having apparently noticed that this appears inconsistent in certain respects with some of the more basic of Christ's teachings. Um, Do we understand what is behind this, James? Is there a genuine crisis of conscience going on here, or is it something else? Uh, I I sort of start to wonder whether it is. It's, um, I mean, the sort of embrace by the state of the sort of church and vice versa has uh, been quite a mutually beneficial partnership. It's sort of helped... Russia, Russia's government with its uh, operation to set Russia as very culturally distinct from the West um, and to sort of say, you know, we are different, we have different values, we have different agendas and to sort of promote that clash of cultures, um, you know, which has then been leveraged into things like crackdowns on homosexuality, etc, etc. Um, and so anything that seems to sort of drive any kind of wedge in between that seems to me, you know, as a lay observer, quite interesting. Um, I mean, I don't think there's ever really been anything doctrinal behind this. You know, <laughs> I think there's this sort of the old romanticised notion of, you know, blessing the sword of a holy warrior on a crusade with the idea that that will only be used in very targeted killing. Yeah, the, the, the issue here... And this appear- idea is, you know... Um, not blessing. I think it's specifically not blessing weapons that can kill indiscriminately. Yeah, there, there does appear to be so. that appears to be the issue. There is a discrepancy in the, um, yeah, I guess in intelligence or targeting of a a warrior's sword versus a nuclear weapon. Um, Stephen, is there a contest uh, of any sort for influence or power between Russia's church and Russia's military, or, or have they actually usually worked? quite closely together. Well, when you say usually, it's only, of course, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, because... um, Because during the Soviet Union, there wasn't supposed to be a church. uh, No, and it was persecuted. And you had your political officer, um, the staunch representative of the Communist Party, who played the role of the chaplain. I mean, literally, you know, if you had problems, you were supposed to go and see a political officer to to talk about them, whatever, you know, be they moral or ethical or personal. Um, So... With the end of that system, they needed a replacement. And there was a handy one there because there is a lot of Russians have always felt, you know, if, or if, if, if you are Russian, you must be Orthodox, even in Soviet times. Um, so bring in the church. And Putin has um, quite shamefacedly used it um, for his own purposes. Um, you know, he goes along to the Easter service and the Christmas service and... and um, uh, and, and is now building an, a, a military cathedral about 50 miles outside Moscow. Um, so the, the church has been used um, at the same time as Putin has been building up the military. Um, but I, um, I, I think this, this may all rather blow over and, and troops will still be blessed. And I think that's what, probably what they will say. You know, it's, it's, we're still blessing the men. It rather reminded me of, um, there's a, w- a wonderful scene in, in a very, very funny old Woody Allen film called Love and Death, which is a parody of War and Peace. And um, after a battle against Napoleon and 12 men are still alive out of 800 and, and Woody Allen, as one of the soldiers, is burying, uh, burying the dead. And a priest comes around and says, mercifully, God was on our 
Charles' side and Woody Allen's character looks up and says, yeah, might have been worse, might have rained. Um, <laughs> uh, so th- th- this, you know, it's gone back to this old relationship between church and, and army, but it's, it's, it's very cynical the way it's used by, by Putin and those around him. Well, just to follow that up, Stephen, um, will Putin therefore be annoyed at all by this, this vague, putative act of rebellion by the church? He might be slightly irked because it sounds as if it's um, as if it's rebelling. But um, on the other hand, I, I don't. You know, he's got other things that um, he'll he'll worry about. As long as the uh, you know the the chaplain is still there, the the troops will still be blessed. I think that you know he'll say, well, you know, this is this. He's very good at shrugging these things off and saying, you know, that you know we we still are. You know, army, church, and 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 state are still all together. I'm sure he'll say that. Okay. well, finally on today's news panel, the very much former UK Prime Minister David Cameron has become accustomed to headlines jeering in his general direction. He can today at least console himself that he is not the one who committed an absurd, complacent, unforced error with potentially catastrophic consequences. One of Cameron's police protection officers left his pistol and his and Cameron's passports in the toilet of a British Airways flight returning from New York City. An amount of kerfuffle ensued when a subsequent visitor to the facilities found them. Um, I I did want to launch this in in true local radio style as a a terrific cue for a discussion of what the dumbest thing you have ever forgotten anywhere is. Uh, James, I I, I put this question to you. uh, I I did manage not to lose it, but the one that jumps to mind was uh, the first time I met uh, Julian Assange, uh, the sort of WikiLeaks founder I used to work for. Um, he at about 1am gave me a, on a Saturday night, Sunday morning, gave me a USB stick. With, this, is, uh, this is going to go well, I can tell already. 251,000 <laughs> US military records on it. Uh, quite a lot of them classified, secret, confidential, etc. Unredacted at this stage. And um, you start thinking, okay, that's, that's a lot. I, I was about 22 at this point as well. And uh, then he said, um, you know, he sort of went, right, you know, you can leave now. Um, it was not far from here, actually. And then he went, um, can you make sure that you don't go home tonight? Um, you know, I don't want anyone tailing you to join your home address to this location. So, you know, I just need you to go to some other places. And so you sort of realise you're stood outside half one in the morning. You're like, am I meant to just, you know, go to a club in Vauxhall or something? Uh, you know, I can just sort of imagine in the club blues leaving a couple <laughs> hundred thousand classified records. So, so it wasn't ideal. Uh, yeah, my, my, my tale of being, my regular tale of being unable to find my glasses until I walk past a mirror and notice they're on top of my head rather pales uh, behind that. Um, Stephen, is, is that an act you are able to follow? Um, I've often had that awful feeling in the pit of my stomach that I've left something and I realise I've just put it in the wrong pocket. But the, I, I was thinking about this. I think the worst one I ever had actually was a person. Um, it you, was, you forgot an entire person. No, I didn't quite forget them, but I lost them because um, uh, it was in the days when I was young, free and single. Um, and I'd gone to catch a tube train. There was seen there was a 10 minute wait. And this very, very attractive, lovely girl turned to me and said, should we go and get a cab? So we went all the way up and we, we looked for a cab. It was just before Christmas. No cabs. And we looked at the time. Oh, that train's there. So we rushed back down to the uh, down to the tube station. And I hopefully being a gentleman, step back to let her get on first, and the door's closed. This is haunted. And she sort of waved to me. This has haunted you ever since. It has haunted me ever since. My my son said to me, well, I'm very glad you didn't get on after her. (laughs) (laughs) I might not be here, but... um, 
Uh, so that was that's yeah, that was losing a person, I suppose. N- neither of you have ever done the passport losing thing, which which is it. I, I which I, 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 I have never done, but is the one prospect that just makes my blood freeze. I have had passports stolen twice, both times when I was overseas, uh, and one mm. of them, the consulate was shut for three days, um, and so. God knows how I managed it. This is white privilege in action. I managed to fly back to the UK with no form of ID other than... A Did you le- just present yourself at customs and go, this face is my passport? There was a letter <laughs> written in Dutch. I just had, This is a letter from Dutch police saying my passport was stolen and there's no way to get another one. Will you let me in? And I was assuming I'd get taken to a security office or something. The guy just shrugged and like waved me through. So it turns out illegal immigration, much easier than people make out. I've never lost or had my passport stolen, but I did turn up at the airport once when I was working for the Ministry of Defence uh, and was priding myself on being there in good time and suddenly realised I'd forgotten my passport. And servicemen in those days, I don't know if they can still do it, but they used to be able to travel on their mm. identity card. Um, and I had an MOD identity card. So I blagged my way and said, uh, oh, yeah, MOD. And and. That had initials on it, and the warrant officer checking it said, "Oh yes, that's fine, sir. Yes, thank you very much." Um, so uh, I landed in Germany and lived in Germany for a week without a passport, um, uh, and came back and then got the service flight back and said, "I travel on this," um, uh, and got away with it. I, I would just like to <laughs> I, I would just like to, to check out of this with a, a shout out if they happen to be listening because I still think about this reasonably often whenever I wonder where my passport is about whoever pinned a notice to the message board in the lobby of the Palestine Hotel in Baghdad in about April 2000 no May 2003 not long after the invasion just forlornly with a phone number written on the top of it and written beneath it lost Belgian passport who <laughs> would you even see about that James Ball and Stephen Diol thank you both for joining us in a moment the impact of coronavirus on hong kong you're listening to monocle's house view stay tuned This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, Hong Kong's economy was already reeling from the impact of long-going civil protests. Now coronavirus appears just in time to make things worse. Here is the view from Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau. Duddles was eerily quiet yesterday during the usually busy lunchtime service. The regular business crowd at this downtown dim sum restaurant is opting to stay at home during the coronavirus outbreak or avoid Hong Kong altogether. A few hours earlier, the government had reported the first local fatality. But in all honesty, the streets, tables, shops and bars have been empty since Chinese New Year. The lack of custom is having a devastating effect on the hospitality industry that was already on its knees after last year's pro-democracy protests. Hotel executives are worried. In truth, occupancy is likely to be in single figures as tourists cancel holidays and locals shy away from promotional staycations. In a cruel twist, two of the 15 confirmed cases of the virus in Hong Kong have been reported at two luxury hotels, the Four Seasons and the W. The government is going to announce its latest budget later this month, but a bumper list of handouts, cuts and reliefs will come too late for many business owners and certainly for thousands of hospitality staff employed in what is one of the city's pillar industries. 
The hammer blow will be the cancellation of next month's all-imported art Basel, which is expected imminently. Already under question because of the protests, there now seems to be no way that Hong Kong's flagship art fair can go ahead, despite strong local support and the city's miraculous good fortune in minimizing the spread of the virus. While employers accept that no one will be flying into Hong Kong for a while, the talk around the few occupied lunch tables is, are you going to fly out? That was The View from the Hong Kong Bureau, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Augustin Machalari and researched by Yoling Goffan and Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.